<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, everybody. I'm Lou Dobbs, and this is The Great America Show. Great to have you with us, and welcome to this episode of Truth, Justice, and the American Way in Resurgence. And I say resurgence with all the mass corporate media and some really smart politicos. We now know they're smart because they tell us constantly they are. Those politicos holding forth nonstop on these upcoming midterms, less than a week to go, by the way. And there's a word that we don't hear from them much, if at all. It's a word that's usually very much in use in this final week leading up to the election. Can you guess the word I'm thinking of? The word is momentum. Do you notice that the left just isn't using it? The Marxist Dems aren't using it? The corporate Marxist media isn't using it? Momentum has been conspicuously absent from the blather emanating from the aforementioned unesteemed politicos who normally would be talking about, for example, President Biden on the campaign trail, all of the excitement that attends that, boosting the fortunes of, say, John Fetterman in Pennsylvania. But, no, Biden did pop in, announced in his usual jabber that Fetterman is his kind of guy. Do you remember that? His kind of guy. And I thought there are two guys of the same kind. And his puppet maskers whisk him back to Delaware to hide out from the media. And in his place, the Barack Obama icon rolled into action. Yes, the same Barack Obama, who over his tenure as president lost 63 House seats and 12 Senate seats, turned a 257-seat majority in the House into a 197-seat minority, a 60-seat majority in the Senate into a 48-seat minority. But the hits just keep rolling with Obama. When Obama took office in 2009, Democrats held both bodies in 27 state legislatures and lost almost half of them by the end of his presidency. 13 of 27 state legislatures were lost. So by all means, dear Marxist Dems, please, please keep on the campaign trail till Election Day with Mr. Obama at the forefront, because the only worst person you could possibly put out there at this point would be Biden himself. Now you've chosen, I think wisely, to hide him. And also, though, feel free if you decide Obama is costing the Marxist stems just too many races, send out those angels of leftist hope and mercy, Kamala Harris, or perhaps just as effective and likable as well, how about Hillary herself? I'd love to see her on the campaign trail. Maybe you put them together. What a What an image. And I promise you, the political ground would shake beneath our feet. And I can't wait for the group picture of that. Presidents Obama and Biden in the center, of course, and on either side of them, Hillary and Kamala. The caption might read, Marxists at play, truth at bay. Well, give me your own caption if you would like. I'd like to hear from you. But back to that word momentum. 
Not even the Marxist propagandists from hell on the Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, Disney, ABC, and Comcast, NBC, and MSNBC could possibly muster sufficient bile to lie about the Marxist Dems' momentum in these midterms. It's just not there. There's not even enough energy on the campaign trail to pretend there is. Another M-word weighed them down, I'm sure. The word is moribund. That describes these Dems in this midterm election. Even the Marxist minions of the Post and Time surely comprehend that there is about to be an accounting for all their lies and betrayal of truth, justice, and yes, the American way. The left is moribund. Marxism is what it has always been, a shallow and disproved set of authoritarian tenets posing as an ideology worthy of the blood and death required for the taking of power. There is not one single instance or example of Marxist success, but that is the venal credo of what is left of the dying Democrat Party in America. And the polls now show clearly that the Republicans, conservatives, and independents who are putting America first, who mean for this great republic to succeed, have been building, here's that word, momentum, and building it for months now. And that momentum is getting stronger as we now near Election Day. The polls show clearly now that voters are turning their backs on the left-wing hacks, their destructive purpose, and in the latest polling, 79% of voters say the country is headed in the wrong direction. This week, we're talking with candidates, pollsters, and strategists from all around the country. Today, our guests are two great Americans. Senatorial candidate Adam Laxall will be talking with the former attorney general as he crisscrosses the state of Nevada in his campaign bus and leading in that tough race for the Senate. We'll bring him in right after we talk with the gubernatorial candidate, Dr. Scott Jensen of Minnesota. Dr. Jensen has practiced and taught medicine in the state for most of his life, and he's just pulled into a slight lead over the incumbent Democrat governor. And joining us now, Dr. Scott Jensen. Great to have you with us, doctor. I know you've been working hard. You've built a terrific campaign to serve the people of Minnesota. You're obviously not a professional politician, but you've pulled ahead in that race, and that's got to feel good. Welcome to the Great America Show. Congratulations on your campaign and your lead. Amen. Thank you, Lou, and thank you for having me on. We were very pleased to see our literally nearly two-year effort bring us to a point where we're now a half a point ahead of Tim Walls. I think there's an energy going across the state of Minnesota and, and beyond, to be sure. But the Trafalgar poll, which put us a half a point ahead, was, I believe, one of the only polls that identified the 2006 presidential correct, uh, election correctly and also was one of the highest-ranked um, polls, polling companies in 2020 regarding accuracy. So we exactly. felt good about that. I think our message of inflation, crime, and education is really what people want to hear about. Oh, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more based on what this audience, what it responds to, what folks uh, all over the country are, are, are responding to on this podcast. I have to say, if there's anything more uh, than the safety, uh, the family, uh, the safety of the family uh, and education, I, I can't think much more uh, about what it would be. Uh, 
if we have an economy, if we have a community that is safe and, and, and supportive of our children uh, and families, I, I think we're, <laughs> we're a long ways to, to where we want to be, don't you? I do. And it seems, it, it seems so surreal that we could be living in, in a time where parents can't send their kids out in the front yard or the backyard to play uh, with the comfort level that they could have uh, 25 years ago, that when parents send their kids on the bus, that they have to worry, that parents who know their kids are in school have to worry. It seems to me that it all boils down to this. If we don't feel safe, we're not safe. And America is not feeling safe. Right. Uh, it, and as a matter of fact, for many Americans, this is a time of great fear, uh, outright uh, and straightforwardly. Uh, they're afraid to, for example, in, in New York City, they're afraid to walk down the streets, that somebody will sucker punch them, that they'll get knifed, uh, beaten to death, uh, pushed in front of a subway train. Uh, this has become uh, a, a, a just a terrible time as we're watching crime rise in nearly every major city. There are dim-driven and managed cities uh, but uh, in point of fact, nearly every major city has a crime problem, uh, a, a problem with uh, children, uh, and a problem with teachers who are bringing a, a level of, uh, to me, it's just obscenity uh, and, and madness to the classroom and trying to do so without the knowledge of the parents of those children. It is a, a terrible time in our public schools in, I would say, most parts of the country. I agree with you, Lou, and I think we could trace it to education where my wife and I both were the product of uh, public schools. Um, all of our ch our children were. Uh, I was on the school board for 10 years. I was chairman three years. And I, what I'm so struck by, Lou, is that virtually everybody out there has a handful of teachers they can think back to who profoundly touched their lives in a positive way. And that's what we need to get back to. But I have to say, when I think of Mrs. Zahn, my Latin teacher, or Ms. Waysman, my Spanish teacher, or Mr. Young, my math teacher, I could not tell you, Lou, what their political views were. There was no need to know. What I could tell you is that if I didn't get my assignments handed in on time, if I didn't listen carefully, if I was a problem, my parents would know about it, and that would be a problem far bigger than anything that happened at school. And so I think that sometimes we, we have a tendency to think that the education system has gone wrong because we're not having the kind of teaching we, have, we used to have. I don't think that's true. I think teachers go into teaching to touch kids' lives. I think we've seen an incredible exponential increase in many states on spending. But generally, if you look at where those dollars went, they're not going to the classroom. They're not going to the teachers. Oftentimes, they're going to a lot of, if you will, collateral expenses, oftentimes administrative expenses. I think teachers in Minnesota, at least, don't feel nearly as safe as they used to. They frequently feel that they are at risk of being beat up. They don't feel like they have the support of the administration. I think there's been a disconnect between the parents and the teachers because together they, in the past, have always coalesced their efforts to make sure that, that Johnny and Janie were both achieving as much as they could. I think we've seen a dramatic drop-off in student achievement in minority communities, uh, in part because of these sort of 
pandering kind of woke uh, policies put in place where someone thinks they're being kind to someone by setting the standards or setting the bar lower so that they won't have so much difficulty achieving it. And all you're really doing is stamping down harder than ever on those people. So I, I think there are so many things that have gone wrong that we have got to have the hard conversation. And I think we're seeing that this election cycle and that conversation is causing many people, particularly liberals, to rethink their position on this. Yeah, I, I hope that you're right, uh, liberals, uh, uh, as you style them. Uh, I unfortunately have to, as I look around, the, focusing as we do on this podcast, mostly on uh, national issues, the swamp, Washington, D.C., uh, and the people there who inhabit it. We're looking at a, a government right now that is controlled by Marxist Dems, driving both uh, this, what I consider to be a puppet president uh, and a Democrat party uh, that has gone so far left as to be, I, I don't think it's possible to to separate the Democrat party from, from Marxists on the national level. Uh, it's a true threat to our democracy, to this republic in every way. Uh, we have a, a, we have a uh, Department of Education that works with the White House and the Justice Department to have uh, parents of teachers, uh, parents of uh, children uh, in school board meetings being declared domestic uh, terrorists or uh, extremists. Uh, it, it's it's a remarkable time in our country. I, I, I think a dark moment that uh, we have to have lights. We have to uh, move toward a better day. Uh, and I'm glad to see that you are willing to give of your time and yourself and your family uh, to to help out the people of Minnesota and contribute to the nation that has to make a turn here toward what is right, what is just, uh, and what is, without question, America. Uh, what what drove you to, to make this decision? Because I know it had to be a difficult one, and I certainly know that the, the path you're on is a, a very rough road indeed. Uh, give, us, give us a sense of uh, what turned you to public service. Lou, thank you for asking. I did not see myself going into politics. I'm a very content family doctor who's had a wonderful career. I oftentimes compare myself to George Bailey, and it's a wonderful life. I've been so blessed. Uh, my wife and I, my wife, Mary, is a veterinarian. She just uh, retired a couple of years ago, very successful, practiced for 40 years. Our two daughters are both physicians. Our son is a successful uh, partner in a law firm and focuses on estate planning. I've been awarded Family Doctor of the Year in Minnesota in 2016. But after doing 10 years in school board, I thought that I was done with my political career, and that was done in the 1990s. But in 2015, after my wife and I returned from a two-week trip to Israel, I was recruited to run for the Senate, mainly because I'd started my own medical clinic, I had been involved with the school board, and I had been involved with infrastructure projects in Carver County, Minnesota, which is a mix of both rural communities and more suburban communities, and I had been involved in road projects. Over two months, my wife and I were recruited to run. I served one term in the Senate, and I saw how broken our governance was. At the same time, my wife had some critical health issues that necessitated four major surgeries, oh. and we decided to re-election in large part because I needed to be there for Mary, and she's always been there for me. 
So fast forward, my wife goes through four major surgeries, including having a tumor removed from her head. It comes back benign. She has her neck rebuilt. She has her shoulder rebuilt. She has her knee rebuilt. And one day she looks at me and she says, Scott, I haven't felt this good in a decade, which is a miracle (laughs) of the making. At the same time, COVID hit. And I've always been, I've always been a bit of a skeptic. My dad taught me that my father was a, a judge and an attorney. And so I remember getting an email from the Department of Health in Minnesota encouraging us to use COVID-19 as the underlying cause of death on death certificates in a way that I'd never been coached before. And I, I read the email and my heart sank and I thought, why would they do this? For 40, 35 years, I've been teaching residents at the medical school. I've been a professor there. Why would they change it up? Why would they corrupt the way we accumulate our data? Why would they have us say that this death was COVID when in fact it was stage four colon cancer? And my raising my hand and challenging that and ending up uh, being on national TV sort of pushed me forward into a role that I'd never had before. And one thing led to another where all of a sudden I was on the Laura Ingram show with some frequency, Dr. Carlson, Tony Robbins, Dr. Drew, Rush Limbaugh, and these kinds of things. And people started to say, Doc, we know that you're not in the Senate anymore, but we need this kind of reasonable, logical, skeptical sanity in our political system. We need you to run for governor. My wife and I said no for about six months and finally said, okay, it seems to us that the words of Esther 414, have you considered that you're in the position you're in for such a time as this? is touching your life. And it seemed like that. Mary was feeling well. I had been pushed to the front of the line. I had a national presence of half a million people following me on uh, social media platforms. And so we jumped in. Well, that's that's an amazing journey in very short order. I, I have to say, I, I'm glad that you have been, uh, been motivated uh, to, to do this. And I know the people of Minnesota have got to be thrilled. Uh, your opponent may not be. Uh, I understand that you're, there's not going to be a debate, uh, a gubernatorial debate uh, in Minnesota this year, just as there's not uh, in state after state all across the country. It's astonishing, Lou, but it seems like so many politicians are sort of thumbing their nose at the voters. They're saying, listen, if Joe Biden can win a presidential election by sort of dwelling in the basement, and not getting out there and speaking to the issues, why can't I use the same page out of the playbook? So a lot of people, I think, in politics that feel like they're on solid ground don't want to put anything at risk. They'd rather shut the voters out from an honest conversation and say, listen, we got the ball on the three-yard line, and to get it across the goal line, all we have to do is depend on our political machinery. Uh, the media will be with us, and we've got money galore because we're the incumbents, so they're not doing the debates. And in Minnesota, we will not have one statewide broadcast televised debate with a live audience in during the entire campaign. Uh, Tim Walls, the incumbent, has allowed a radio debate for an hour with no audience. He allowed a debate arm fest uh, with no television. He allowed one outstate televised debate with no live audience, but it could not be broadcast by the Minneapolis-St. Paul television networks. He has played every card in his hand to manipulate what the voters get to see and what issues 
they get to hear about being discussed candidly. And I think in Minnesota, it's going to backfire. And that's why we're so, that's why we're so darn fired up, Lou, because we're hearing from Minnesotans. They're angry. Uh, they feel like Tim Walls is telling them uh, that they're not up to the task of demanding what he should be delivering, which would be an honest, open, transparent campaign. He's basically thumbing his nose at him saying, you know what? I don't need to have a conversation that you get to hear. I'm going to win this thing whether you like it or not, because this is the way we do things. And people are ticked. Well, the way they do things, it's, and I, I'm going to ask you this because I don't know the answer. Uh, is your opponent, is he as left-wing as he sounds? Because that's an authoritarian, uh, if you will, position and perspective uh, that he's bringing to the, to, to whether or not he debates before the people of Minnesota. It, it's outrageous, and we're seeing it all over the country. Well, my opponent, Tim Walls, arguably has three different nicknames that sort of float around. And I think each one is informative. The first one is many people have called him a copycat. It seemed like during the COVID pandemic, he was constantly copying Governor Cuomo out of New York or Governor Newsom out of California in, in terms of locking kids out of school, locking businesses down, locking nursing home patients into a facility that was infested with COVID-19 and then denying these patients the right to have the comfort of their loved ones with them as they passed away. He continued to copy these kinds of poor policy decisions. Another nickname he said is he is the godfather of crime epidemic in America. Arguably, the way he handled the riots in 2020 uh, really ignited uh, violence and devastation in so many cities across uh, Minnesota and as well as across the, the entire nation. And I think he's also been called emperor and the emperor came from his heavy-handed assumption of emergency powers and his willingness to use them cavalierly. He would put an order into place, and two or three or four months later, he might rescind it, but he wouldn't really announce that he's rescinding it. He would make mistakes, try to correct them in the dark of the night so that people wouldn't recognize that he had reversed himself. He did this literally for more than a year, and Minnesotans were just devastated. If you look at the states around us, their economies recovered more quickly. Uh, their students performed more admirably in terms of achievement. We literally got hammered in Minnesota, and it was because of a governor that too much enjoyed the power and authority of a dictator, as well as one who copied Newsom and Cuomo too much. And then when it came time for leadership in dealing with riots and violence, we had our news broadcasters in Minnesota saying, where's our governor? Yeah, it's, it's, it sounds like, I, I guess, pretty, pretty close to it. He sounds authoritarian, totalitarian. Uh, downright Marxist, uh, and I'm, I don't know, but I would assume based on all the violence that we saw in, in your state as well as neighboring states uh, in 2020 in the summer of riots and arson uh, and, and murder principally by BLM and Antifa, uh, that he didn't prosecute a lot of people either and didn't insist on their prosecution. 
but that's just a guess. I, I'll leave it to you to, to whether you want to discuss it. But I'm, I have to say, you sound like exactly as you uh, quoted. Uh, you sound like the man at this uh, at the right moment because you're focused on, on education. Uh, I'm also a product of public schools, and I know how important they are. They're they're so critically important that they should never ever be under the control of two teachers unions anywhere in the country. And I know that Minnesota is a complicated uh, place, doctor, but it it has to be still a place of plain talk. And so I think we have to talk honestly about what these unions did across the nation. I don't know whether indeed it happened in Minnesota, but they shut down schools and we watched national test scores just dive. Uh, We can never recover uh, those uh, children uh, and uh, all the, the deficit that was created so unnecessarily and and so against science uh, to suggest that these young people had to be both uh, shut, you know, their schools shut down uh, and mass worn, both of which turned out to be complete uh, hogwash. Uh, your thoughts? I think you're spot on. I think that so much of the policy decision-making uh, was hogwash. It was defended oftentimes by the mantra, follow the science. I can't help but think, Lou, about Dr. Walensky with the CDC and the announcement today that despite the fact that she had COVID-19 October 21st and she had been up to date, fully vaccinated at that time, then she got COVID, she took Paxlovid and she evidently improved and she tested negative. And now within the last 24 hours, symptoms have reoccurred. She's tested positive again. Once again, she's in isolation. I think that Americans really saw their trust in public health undermined and undercut. And that trust is not easily rebuilt. And it was broken because of flawed policy decisions. These were not people that surrounded themselves with sector private sector leaders, as well as true scientists and physicians that were in the trenches taking care of COVID-19 patients. So many of these decisions were led by political bureaucrats that are more concerned about what the political spin looks like than anything else. And we saw so much devastation, and you've mentioned it over and over again. And at the end of the day, arguably, the longest impact of these poor policy decisions are going to be, what did we do to our children? What did we do by setting them back a year? I think some people have the mistaken idea that, well, if they lost a year of teach, of learning, we can just have them repeat that grade. It doesn't work that simply. You and I both know that, Lou. There is no mulligan with kids. Kids learn age-appropriate developmental information, whether you're talking reading, writing, and arithmetic. And if you throw that whole thing out of whack, you don't get to snap your fingers and see everything rectified. It's not going to happen. Public schools, as you said earlier, are in place to provide America with a strong citizenry, with everybody knowing how to do some reading, some writing, and some arithmetic. That makes us stronger. That makes us able to dream dreams, build businesses, hire employees, read contracts, do all of these things. All of that infrastructure for our democracy is now at risk. And it's absolutely essential 
as you say, to be good citizens because good citizens are informed citizens and without education, it's all but impossible to be that. Uh, as we we are experiencing over the past, I would say at least uh, two decades, and as you look as you look at government itself, because there is so much corruption, and I have to admit that I am perhaps not only uh, I'm a born skeptic. Uh, I was taught to say what I mean and mean what I say, uh, and you know uh, everything else. Take a <laughs> put a grain of salt with it, uh, whatever the the source. Uh, it, it's just to me, stunning that our young people are growing up in a society right now, and I don't think there is an exception to this any in any state in the union, where the teachers are suspect. Uh, they are, in some cases, wanton ideologues, whose last consideration I think are, t- are children. I hate to say it, but I, that's exactly what I think many of them are, uh, particularly associated with those two teachers unions. Uh, our, our business community is not standing up. Uh, they've become, uh, certainly our corporate, corporate America has become a globalist cabal uh, that is more interested in their global standing than they are as citizens of this great country that is their, after all, their home country, home economy, uh, and with great responsibilities to uh, our employees. What is your sense of what a governor can do to assure prosperity in Minnesota? Well, I think we we really need to um, focus on the three big issues. And uh, the first one is inflation. I think that our governor has put in place policies that have absolutely jacked up inflation higher than it needs to be. He hooked our wagon on California on, on car mandate emissions to the California rules. Well, that meant that our refineries had to go through extra steps, spend extra dollars, those Expenses were passed on to us at the pump, so our gas prices went up more than they needed to. Our governor wanted to increase our state gas tax by 70% for the last three and a half years, and now he's finally said, well, I'm going to hold off on that. So I think from an inflation perspective, that's one of the areas. I think the second one is, is crime. I mean, this isn't rocket science. If you have the governor of your state undermining and you know, sort of hamstringing police from doing the work that they should be doing, you're going to pay a consequence. And we're seeing that. We need to have more cops in the street corners, but we also need to respect the work they do. We need to realize that incarceration has got to be used as a tool to deter repeat violent felons. We need to have our judges and our prosecuting attorneys understand that a mandated minimum sentence means exactly that, a mandated minimum sentence. And we need to enforce the laws. This is how we're going to deal with crime. If we don't do it that way, we're just kidding ourselves, and we're not going to be able to restore public safety. And that's a huge deal because it's disrupting so much of our lives. And the last one is education. We've got to be very clear on one thing. We didn't create an education system as a means in and of itself. We created an education system to get kids from point A to point B, which is reading, writing, arithmetic, and some basic history and understanding of our democracy. And this should not be revisionist history that's rewritten every generation. This is this crazy what's going on. And if we would get our, our basic moral compass, back in order. And when I say moral compass, Lou, I'm not trying to tell people they have to listen to my moral compass. We all have our own moral compass. Sometimes we allow the the core convictions that make up our moral compass to be bastardized uh, by a desire to pander or to, if you will, 
provides theater or virtue signaling, and it makes us feel good, but we don't look at the long-term consequences. For instance, maybe we think that taking a 17-year, a potential 17-year sentence for someone who shoots randomly into a car that's got two kids in it, we take their 17-year two felony charge and we plea bargain it down to four months and then we have the judge say, oh, by the way, we'll have you serve that in house arrest situation so they're spending no time in jail. Maybe we think we're being kind and generous and thoughtful. We're not. What we're doing is we're undercutting our very fabric of society and we're making safety less likely. We're making rampant violence more likely. We're making it more likely that our kids will not perform. We're making it more likely that our minority students will have an increasing achievement gap. We're making it more likely that inflation will grow because some of these moves are inflationary. Absolutely. And the economy, as you say, it depends on uh, all of us uh, being as educated, uh, being healthy and and working hard as good citizens, as good people, uh, with a moral compass, whether that compass uh, is uh, you choose uh, to read the Bible and uh, follow your faith, or whether it is a simple right and wrong. Because there is a philosophy in this country, the American code uh, has always been to do the right thing uh, and to treat uh, one another as we would be treated. The golden rule still hasn't been suspended. It's a it's a rule, and I've never found an exception. Uh, and I think more people would be well served to to follow that if uh, they lack any other moral compass. It's it's a it's a shame that we're at this point, as you said, to think that all that we've progressed in, all that we have advanced in as a society, uh, as an economy, and as a nation, uh, we come to this point where we have to talk about what is right and proper in our classroom, uh, whether there should be trans or, uh, gender transitioning uh, for uh, nine-year-olds. Uh, I, I mean, these these issues on their face are outrageous, dis- appalling, uh, and, and are really uh, questions with a, that are unnecessary because the answers are standing, staring everybody right in the face. It's just wrong. It's that simple. I think you're absolutely right, Lou. And and if a person said, okay, how did we get to this point? I think one of the things that we've seen in retrospect is that there's this movement out there that says there are no absolutes, that everything is relative. And I would argue with that. There are absolutes. And you just mentioned one of them. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. There is no way to bastardize that. That's an absolute. The Ten Commandments in the the book of Exodus, uh, there is no way to make those relative. But when you can twist things so that nothing is is for sure, and that that's how you get to a point where you tell a young child what you accomplished here by working your tail off on this report doesn't really amount to much because of the color of your skin or because of the difference that you have phenotypically. This is nuts. Any child psychologist worth their weight in manure will recognize that we need to lift children up. We need to give them a sense of accomplishment, a sense of achievement, because what that will do will fuel their desire to go out and achieve and accomplish more. 
we are absolutely performing some dastardly kind of social, psychosocial experiment on our kids, and we're going to pay a price so deep we can't even begin to understand the depth of it. I, I love the fact uh, that you talk so passionately about what we can do, and I know that every state in the union uh, wishes it had a candidate for governor uh, who was aspirational uh, as you uh, and who has a career, a lifetime uh, of uh, achievement uh, and and uh, living <laughs> living proof of uh, you're a witness to to absolutes as a physician. Uh, there are uh, simple parameters that exist for life itself and uh, in politics and society. Uh, there are absolutes, and amongst them is decency, uh, intelligence, capacity, and character. And I just have to say, doctor, I'm pleased to be talking with a person who exhibits all of those uh, qualities. And I thank you so much for being with us here today on The Great America Show. We have a, we have a rule on this show. Uh, we always give the, the guest, uh, our guest, the last word. And if you will, uh, doctor, your, your closing thoughts. I don't think America or Minnesota is positioned on a path that's sustainable. And I think in order for us to find our way back to who we are as a people, as a nation, is going to involve a lot of hard work. I think one of the things we all have to take the responsibility for is at some level, we cannot move from disagreement to contempt. We have to keep asking, keep talking to one another. We need to maybe, let's seek to understand the other person before we demand that they understand us. Let's remember the words of C.S. Lewis when he said, you never meet an ordinary person. We all have our story. And if we allow that story to emerge, oftentimes it gives us a chance to build a bridge. And if we can build a bridge, I'm convinced, Lou, that what we will find is that there's a little speck of common ground between us. And at that point in time, we can expand on that common ground, and I think we can solve problems. But I think it's going to hold, it's going to require candor that isn't there. It's going to require, if you will, a risk-taking kind of leadership where you ask questions that might seem a little edgy, but you ask them because it's the only way we're going to find a way to the solution. Too many times we have politicians trying to drive the conversation with their rhetorical political solutions, which in fact won't get us anywhere close to being where we need to be. We need to ask the questions. We need to focus on asking the questions. That takes a skeptical mind. Our campaign is uh, headquartered at our website, Lou, and it's drscottjensen.com, D-R-S-C-O-T-T-J-E-N-S-E-N.com. We've tried to put out 10-point plans every two weeks for the last five months, trying to fight inflation, fight the slipping educational system, fight crime, fight the energy situation. And um, we are eight days away from the election. If people see fit to helping support us financially, that would be terrific. If they want to learn more about us, going to our website at drscottjensen.com would be helpful for them. And, Lou, I want to thank you for your voice in trying to help America find a path out of the morass that we find ourselves in. That's very kind of you, and I appreciate it, Doctor. Uh, and it's uh, Doctor, uh, is it D-R, or is it Doctor spelled out again? Doctor D-R-S-C-O-T-T-J-E-N-S-E-N.com. I'm going to be going there myself this very day. 
I, I appreciate it, uh, and I recommend, by the way, everybody in the audience, take a look. The doctor is a fascinating fella, and it's going to be quite a race there in Minnesota. And I hope, uh, I'll put it this way, uh, doctor, I hope the people of Minnesota win. Uh, they'll make their judgment on November 8th, and uh, uh, good luck to you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you, Lewis. It's been it's been enjoyable chat. I appreciate it very much. Best of luck to Dr. Scott Jensen in his race to be the next governor of the great state of Minnesota. He's a great American. And now we turn to another great American. Our guest is Adam Laxalt. Adam is running for the Senate from the great state of Nevada. Adam is the former attorney general. He's endorsed by President Trump, and it's great to have you on the Great America Show again, Adam. Coming to us from his campaign bus, motoring down the campaign trail. Adam, you've been in the lead in your race for a while now, and we're less than a week away from uh, closing the deal. Election Day, how does it look to you? We have been ahead since Labor Day. That's despite uh, about $90 million from Chuck Schumer and George Soros and company trying to uh, prop up my opponent and trying to attack me with an awful lot of uh, of false attack ads. Uh, But nonetheless, Lou, it is a very, very tight race. And uh, all these have it about two points. And so uh, now's the time we're putting pedal to the metal. And we just started our two-week bus tour that we're going to do every single county in the state. And we just need to get people out, get people motivated. And certainly if people can donate, and help us match all this money at adamlaxell.com. We'd appreciate it. Let's uh, let's turn, if we can, to all that money that's being thrown into the state of Nevada to defeat Adam Laxalt. What in the world is going on with this uh, Democrat Party? They're they're going after the strongest candidates of of our Republican Party. Uh, you're thinking about what it's going to take to to seal the deal here. Yeah, look, the bottom line is that they understood early that the Senate was going to come down to Nevada. You know, we 50-50. This, we believe, from the very beginning was the top flip opportunity in America. I always knew she was going to be a weak incumbent. Most Nevadans didn't know her. She had no accomplishments in all her years in public office. And, of course, you know, the, the, the big one is that she's been a rubber stamp for Joe Biden and his open borders agenda, the inflation, the gas. All this stuff that's killing our state, she has stood right there with them, and people are definitely ready for change. And so, you know, we've known that, and there's people coming late to the party. They're helping, and they're helping match some of that stuff. Uh, And, of course, the polls are showing that this is, of the four flip races, we're the one that is up today on the averages. And so, as a result, they're trying to load more money in and trying to save her. Now, I don't think the money is going to save her. Uh, In the end of the day, I think people have heard enough of it. And they understand that 75% of Nevadans think that, that we're headed in the wrong direction. Joe Biden's at 37%, and he earned it. And uh, I think people are going to vote for change. They're going to vote for somebody that's a former AG that's backed by 95% of law enforcement in this state, backed by the Border Patrol, first time in the history of our state, because they know that I'm going to try to fight for a secure border and back back our law enforcement. Well, and, and Cortez Masto, I, I mean, she's got some crazy ideas all by herself. But the idea that she's talking about the Inflation Reduction Act is a great first start to, to fighting inflation. 
I, I mean, those are those are beauties. You would expect Joe Biden had written that line for. Her. You know, and what's so crazy is that before that vote, Nevada was already almost 16 percent inflation. And so if you live in my state, you've been treated for many, many months to this whole chameleon routine where she runs away from Biden's agenda and pretends she's independent and all this. Well, she had a great chance to be independent and tell her president we can't afford one penny more of spending from D.C. and to say no. And guess what? There would not have been an Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, but, but her vote wasn't even up for grabs. She was an automatic, reliable vote, as she always is. And as a result, uh, things are heading even worse, even further in the wrong direction than, than they were just, you know, six, eight weeks ago. And people are, you cannot believe what gas is like here. Imagine over $6. In other swing state races, it's $3, and people are complaining. Or $6. That's 150 bucks to fill a truck or an SUV, which we have plenty of in this great western state where people have to drive everywhere. And so people are upset, and people finally understand, uh, once they get through all the fake commercials, that Senator Massa's votes are directly responsible for our conditions here in Nevada. Well, let me ask you this. You you think you'll get the, a large turnout uh, where is the Hispanic vote going? Is it going to you uh, in sizable numbers? Look, we think that we're in the middle of a red wave. We think that people are incredibly upset. You know, I, I became attorney general in 14, and I remember what it was like traveling this state. People were upset with Barack Obama using the phone and the pen to run over our Constitution. Well, guess what? We've got that times 10 going right now. And I think people are really, really upset. Uh, it goes well beyond inflation, border, and gas. People are upset with everything. They understand fundamentally the left is taking over our country. They're destroying our values. And I think they're going to turn out that way. If we have a tsunami red referendum election against Joe Biden, that's the most important first step we can take to trying to take back our country. This contrast, uh, Joe Biden by himself run is running in this election there is no question that he's on the ballot uh, he is uh, falling asleep during interviews now making all sorts he said that he said that he had won the vote on the student debt uh, student loan debt uh, forgiveness uh, executive order that he had signed uh, he is gone he is gone and the democrat party the marxist dem party has to take full responsibility for having put him in the White House, don't you think? Oh, yeah. They they went with the hiding Hyden biden strategy, and they worked it to perfection. And now we've got somebody in office that's clearly not mentally capable of this job. It's scary. Uh, and I could tell you that Joe Biden is campaigning, as I'm sure you reported, mm -hmm. even in western states. And guess which state he skipped over? His dear friend, Catherine Cortez Masto, she was on the VP shortlist. Their families have known each other forever, uh, and she does not. She acts like she's never even met the guy. Uh, but we're holding her accountable for her votes. Uh, in the end of the day, we think we're going to be able to flip this race as long as everybody gets out to vote and as long as conservatives across America help donate. We are going to flip Nevada on November 8th. Looking forward to it and wishing you all the best of luck. I, I, I have to say, I, talking to candidates around the country right now, 
I sense that that red wave is real, uh, that people have had a belly full of high inflation, uh, volatile markets, a president who has moved our troops. Uh, they just Joe Biden just sent in the 101st Airborne, uh, for crying out loud, into Eastern Europe uh, and talking about leading a David Petraeus. General David Petraeus it's, talking it's, about it's leading a, the U.S. It's, forces into uh, Ukraine. It's scary times, and I hope the American public is taking note that the commander-in-chief matters. If the, if the bad people in the world do not respect your commander-in-chief, no question the world is a less safe place. And they, they gave Trump relentless you-know-what for his four years, but these dictators didn't dare when he was in office. And so the voters now have a clear contrast of a different style of leader. I mean, getting beyond just the the core competence issue, his approach to international politics is simply not going to keep us safe. So people understand that as well. They know Afghanistan was a debacle. They know we didn't need to lose any troops there if we actually had competent leadership and did that the right way. And add that to the long list of things people are upset about which is why people are ready for change and why we think we're going to pull this thing out. Thank you, Lou, for having me. God bless you. Thanks, everybody, for being with us today. Our guest this week includes Senator Ted Cruz, Arizona's GOP Chair Kelly Ward, Michigan Attorney General Candidate Matt DiPerno, Arizona's gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake. And tomorrow here on The Great America Show, our guest is Kelly Ward on one of the most exciting tight races in the nation. Here tomorrow, please join us. Till then, God bless you, and may God bless America.